The dawn was apple green, the sky was green wine held up in the sun. The moon was a golden petal between. She opened her eyes and green they shone, clear like flowers undone for the first time. Now, for the first time, seen. Green, a poem by D.H. Lawrence. I never saw a wild thing, sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. Self-Pity by D. H. Lawrence A reading life, a writing life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. Oh, there's a very loud goose. Very loud this morning. The goslings are born and are now probably in their teenage years already, busy bustling around looking awkward and gawky outside. We counted about 12 or 13 yesterday. There she is. Yes, very loud. Sometimes they settle on my roof in the morning with a large bang and a skid of their webbed feet. And a month ago they were making an awful amount of noise and waking me up in the morning, but now the goslings are born, things have settled down. I wonder what's going on outside. Let's go and have a look while I wait for the kettle. Bang goes the door. Ah, oh. oh I see, it's not goslings, I'm completely wrong. It's four pheasants. Four pheasants just took off. Oh, and I believe they may have been bothering Plucky the cat. Plucky is a very old cat, our island cat, and she's waddling along very slowly down the boardwalk. I think she may have been pestered with by those pheasants. That was a squawk, squawk, squawk of the pheasants, not, not the mother goose. Hello, Plucky. Plucky is about 17 or 18 we're not quite sure how old you are, are we, darling? Because indeed your birth certificate has been tampered with and your archive is very slim. We have one visit to the vet about ten years ago. Plucky is the island cat. She's moved from boat to boat as she's aged, giving each boat and its owner short shrift when we no longer please her. Hello, darling, are you going to come on board? Here she comes, Plucky the cat. 
don't know if I've got any milk to appease her, however. At least not the right kind of milk. Bang goes the door. And back in the kitchen. Let's see. Not sure I have anything for Miss Plucky. I used to keep supplies of cat food in, but she then moved out on me in a big huff about a year ago. She won't be wanting tea. This morning I'm trying to get close to things as they are. Things as they are. As a writer, I want to write up things as they are. To be able to touch them and hold them and feel them and see them in my mind's eye as though I could reach out and pluck those things. That's the effect I want. So I'm reading D.H. Lawrence and his novella, The Virgin and the Gypsy. It's a tight, slim novella, but it's filled with what I call in The Green Lady, my book forthcoming, The Bright Metal World. The Bright Metal World. The world of things that gleam lustrously at us. Which in the case of D.H. Lawrence is a way of speaking about desire. What sort of man, said Aunt Sissy, who was sitting at tea with the rector and the mater, the girls having been excluded for once from the meal? The two girls, Yvette and Lucille, who were late teenage, early twenties, coming of age, sexually alive, looking for male interest, and here he is. Here he is. A man with a cart, said Yvette. A gypsy, said the maid. The gypsy stood at the back door under the steep, dark bank where the larches grow. The long brooms flourished from one hand and from the other hung various objects of shining copper and brass. A saucepan, a candlestick, plates of beaten copper. The man himself was neat and dapper, almost rakish in his dark green cap and double-breasted green check coat. But his manner was subdued, very quiet, and at the same time proud, with a touch of condensation, with a touch of condescension and aloofness interesting how the letters jump ahead of me as things and I see condescension as condensation. 
Sometimes when we read, I think there's a slippage in our mind. And because we've been attuned to a certain form of language, which in that particular paragraph by Lawrence is a world of material things, copper and brass, a saucepan, a candlestick, plates of beaten copper, long brooms, which the gypsy is carrying with him to sell from his cart, I start to make things in my own mind. I want abstract words to become concrete words, because that's what I'm looking for. And somehow Lawrence brings together the world of material things, the shining metal world, and he takes it internally, so that he draws out the pride and the condescension and the aloofness of the gypsy as though it were one of those long brooms he has slung over the back of his cart. A state of being which we can touch and hold and grasp and take into ourselves. I want the internal world to be represented by the external world and for there to be a continuous relationship between them. Long brooms standing in for proud, haughty demeanour. And it's that transference of thing to internal state I'm trying to get at at the moment in my own writing. An internal state of wanting and of longing and of desire. The candlestick is lovely, said Yvette. Did you make it? And she looked up at the man with her naive, childlike eyes that were as capable of double meanings as his own. Double meanings. All writers go looking for double meanings. Yes, lady. He looked back into her eyes for a second with that naked suggestion of desire which acted on her like a spell and robbed her of her will. Her tender face seemed to go into a sleep. Yes, lady, yes. And throughout this story, Lawrence gives us these small sections where the language seems to break off and follow an internal world of desire and of spell. A fairy tale world, a world of enchantment which comes out of the effect of the material world, the things, the shining things, which the gypsy carries with him, his props and accoutrements, his alluring material props. And he sells, metaphorically speaking, the idea of desire, sexual desire. And that is what draws the attention of Yvette, and Lucille. Yvette is drawn by curiosity, sexual curiosity, to the house of the gypsy. What she wanted to know was whether he really had any power over her. She did not intend him to see her this time. She saw him go down to the gate with his brooms and pans and out to the cart. He carefully stowed away his pans and his brooms 
and fix down the tarpaulin over the cart. Then, with a slow, effortless spring of his flexible loins, he was on the cart again and touching the horse with the reins. The roan horse was away at once, the cart wheels grinding uphill, and soon the man was gone without looking round. Gone like a dream, which was only a dream, yet which she could not shake off. Lawrence repeats words over and over again to convince us of this world of material things, so the word cart is there in the space of two sentences twice. All single syllable words, brooms and pans and cart. Brooms and pans and cart. And actually, as I speak them out loud, they become longer and longer. They are extending. In my mind's eye, in my imagination, they are expanding. They are taking up more space, and I am gesturing now with my left hand as though I'm trying to reach out and grab them and hold them and get them and take them into myself. And when I read someone like Lawrence, that is what he enacts in me. He enacts a kind of tugging or pulling away at my sense of desire, my impulse or my reflex to take. I'll take that, I'll have that broom, that pan from your cart. My hand is moving again. I'm moving towards those words, I'm circling around them, I'm trying to clutch at them and grab them and hold them and take them away in my word, cart. So what D.H. Lawrence has taught me, I suppose, is how to convey things as they are felt, the feeling for things, the feeling for more things, when things also includes a person. But he prepares me to feel by generating a sense of visceral or physical longing for a landscape, often by repetition. I think he's, above all, the writer who has encouraged me to repeat words a simple litany of words which build a world and then enclose the reader inside that world. And once we are enclosed inside that world of boundaries, of walls and fences and laurel hedges and fields and meadows and stone cottages and contours of valleys and slopes and ups and downs, everything pertaining to lines and shape, he then allows the figure to emerge. Yvette, looking out of her stone cottage in Papplewick village. She always expected something to come down the slant of the road. So Yvette starts to conjure, and we have to conjure as writers, we have to conjure the event, the figure, the person, the character who will arrive out of the setting, from out of the setting, from those lines, from those contours, from those grey rocks cropping out. And the last sentence Lawrence gives us before we see Yvette is that of the grey rock cropping out from the dark hillside. 
Everything is preparatory. Everything is waiting with a sense of longing and desire and expectation. She always expected something to come down the slant of the road from Papplewick. And she always lingered at the landing window. Ritual, repetition, doing the same thing over and over again. That's what humans do. And Lawrence endorses that and acknowledges our mental repetitions, our urges and desires which go round in loops and loops and loops through our mind and back out, out like those grey rocks cropping out, out into our body. So yesterday was a spring cleaning day and my friend Ella came to help sweep my mattresses outside and beat them down. My hands are no longer strong enough, alas, to do such work. Sounds feeble, I know, but I'm losing strength in my hands, which is somewhat concerning, but it just means I have to adapt. But we found under the bed this wonderful torn cover of George Eliot's Middlemarch, the front cover of a paperback, which I've had for years and I was reading and rereading for an essay I was writing. Middlemarch has always been very important to me. Those layers upon layers upon layers of psychic structure, which structures the community of Middlemarch. And I always find something new to see or hear when I go into Middlemarch. But this cover is now pinned to my kitchen window and the light is coming through it beautifully and it looks like an ancient rune, R-U-N-E, an ancient literary stone. And I've been really enjoying that light-filled paper rune this morning. My fingers are just going around the edges of it now as I speak to you. Round and around. And I look at this Victorian lady with her smooth peach face, the colour of my roses, nearby, near the kitchen sink. And I see a woman who's deep in thought, deep inside her own world of contemplation, unknowable to me, unknowable to anyone who looks upon her. And of course, that is the premise of George Eliot's literary imagination. The unknowable world, the unknowable interior of our psychic life. And the sunlight is just coming through now and dappling her cheeks and her forehead and her nose where the creases are running very strongly down the centre from her brow, down the line of her nose to her mouth and across her cheeks. The dawn was apple green, the sky was green wine held up in the sun. The moon was a golden petal between. She opened her eyes 
and green they shone, clear like flowers undone for the first time. Now for the first time seen. I never saw a wild thing, sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. D.H. Lawrence makes me want to write, so I have, about feeling. All feeling is exposing, expository. It drives us forward into the arms of the next moment, the next event. Feeling always drives the story. Why do we read except to feel? Why do we write to feel more and more, to stop ourselves becoming dead, inert, stony? David Herbert Lawrence, or DHL, Oppose the state of inertia, and I am reading Lawrence now because I want to feel something. Perhaps especially now as my right arm and hand begin to feel like a dead weight stone from my neurological sag. Flip, flop, a dead seagull, my hand on the keyboard. I am looking for a strong pair of arms to lift me. There is something. There is something in his writing musculature, I want the ripple effect, the ripple effect, the life of the arms, pure physical strength to lift me, to lift me. And because Lawrence brings me a man, a man who carries brooms over the horizon from the dark contours of the hills, from the sloping valley. He brings a man with mottled arms from the grey stone wall, from the grey white road. And the man is brisk and brave and the young woman will take a fancy to him. She will take him down into her well. She will play with him. She will turn him into a golden ball. This day, however, round the corner on the white grey road, between the grass and the low stone walls, a rowan horse came, stepping bravely and briskly downhill, driven by a man in a cap, perched on the front of his light cart. The man swayed loosely to the swing of the cart as the horse stepped downhill in the silent somberness of the afternoon. And I realise as I read that, that I am reading myself into a state of trance. From out of his words comes this magus with a wand, a magic man, a magician, and so the image builds and builds and I hear the cart carrying him, the man, with his long-handled brooms sticking out like stalks of cane. At the back of the cart, 
long duster brooms of reed and feather stuck out, nodding on their stalks of cane. And so I am drawn into a state of quietude and calm, through which I can only see and hear that rowan horse stepping briskly into the sombre shape of the afternoon. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey produced by Andrew Smith If you've enjoyed this podcast please like it, give us a review or mention us to friends or on social media Thank you